Jeremiah chapter 31. <coughs> Title this evening is A New People. A New People. Here in chapter 31, God says, I will, 15 times. 15 times. And when God says, I will, 15 times, you better believe he's going to. You better believe that he's telling us what he's going to do. And we said, you know, in, in chapter 30, we talked about, he mentioned the intents of his heart in chapter 30, verse 24. And the intent of his heart is to judge this God-rejecting, Christ-rejecting, blaspheming world. And then Jeremiah says also at the end of chapter 30, in the latter days, you will consider it. In other words, all he talked about, chapter 30 was all about the tribulation period. And he told them all that was going to happen. It would be a time like no other. And he said, in those last days, you will consider it. In other words, you'll understand all of this. And in these last days, we can see how the world is really getting riper and riper for God's judgment. Today, we are living in dark and oppressive days. But we have a hope, and that hope is on its way. As James says in chapter 5, verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. He's standing at the door, and he's just waiting for the father, the father to say, Son, go get him. Go get your bride as we come into the kingdom and the reign of Jesus Christ. Chapter 31 here deals with the reign of Christ after the great tribulation period that we, again, looked at, uh, which was the subject of chapter 30. So now let's begin in chapter 31 with verse 1. And it reads, at the same time, that is, as, as that, this great tribulation is going on in chapter 30, at the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And thus says the Lord, they shall be my people. Because of Solomon's sins and the foolishness of his son Rehoboam, the Jewish nation was divided. The names Ephraim and Samaria are references to the northern kingdom of Israel whose capital was uh, at Samaria, and Judah was the southern kingdom. But in the last days, the Lord is going to gather his people together, and he's going to unite them. And verse 1 says he's going to be the God of all the families of Israel. Look at verses 2 and 3 now. Again, thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Great verse. Here God gives the reason why he's going to restore the people to the land. God intends to restore the nation of Israel to that land in his own time and in his own plan and in his own purpose. And the basis for that is given right here. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's why I'm going to do this to you and for you. Think about what he said, because it's true. It's an actual fact. The Lord is loving you. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I, the infinite, the incredibly wonderful Lord, loves you. A poor, lost, undeserving, hell-deserving sinner. God didn't say, I feel sorry for you. <clears throat> he didn't say, I have pitied you. He didn't say, I've thought about you. He didn't say, I will love you. But he says, I have loved you. God is in love with you. 
How long has he loved you? Did he start loving you when you got saved? No, way before that. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I loved you when I died for you on Calvary's cross. I loved you long before you got saved. I loved you when I made the heavens and the earth. I loved you before I made the seas and all that's in them. For, uh, he, he says, he, he says I, I, with the, I loved you before I made the seas. And when this great world with the sun and the moon and the stars were still in the mind of God, he loved you. There was, there was a beginning for the world, for time as we know it. But there's no beginning for the love of God to his people. There's never been a time when God has not loved his people. There's never been a pause in his love. There's never been a break, an intermission, a decline in his love for his own. His love isn't finicky. It's not impulsive. It's not irregular. It's not impartial. It's not conditional. There's no shadow or turning in God, as James tells us. When we were babies and we couldn't know him, he loved us. When we were young and foolish and running around in sin and rebellion, he loved us. When we became adults, hard and callous, resisting his grace, he says, I drew you with loving kindness. Even though we didn't run after him, he loved us even then. Paul said in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we wanted nothing to do with him, when we thought nothing of him or about him, could have cared less about him, he still died for us. And he loves us today just as much as he's ever loved us. Even though he might be chasing us, chastening us, he loves us. His love is like a river that never runs dry. It's always flowing and overflowing, and it will never decrease, and it will never stop. It can't increase because it's already infinite. That's awesome. 1 John 4, 4 8 says, God is love. He can't do anything but love because that's his character. Again, his love for us has nothing to do with what we are, what we can do, or what we've done. Now, some people might ask, how can God love these people? Again, in, in, particularly here in chapter 31, who, who he's talking about. And again, but that love goes for us as well. But how can God love these people or any people for that fact? It's a good question. But let's broaden the question. How can God love us today? Why? Because God so loved the world. So not only does God love Israel, he loves the world and he loves you and me. It's easy to point a finger at the Jews and to be critical of them. And many people today are against Israel. But God says, I have loved you, speaking of Israel, with an everlasting love. So there's nothing that you can do about it. He loves you whether you like it or not. And you can't stop making him love you whether you like it or not. God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Instead of pointing the finger at others, we need to turn it around and point at ourselves. In God's eyes, we are just as great sinners as anyone. As anyone who doesn't believe. It took Christ's death on the cross to provide redemption for you and for me. Don't limit it to just a few, to a few people and say, how can God love them? Hey, how can he love you and me? 
we should be amazed that he loves any of us. And again, the only reason why God loves us is not because of anything he sees in us, but it's because of who he is. He is, he is love. We find the explanation for his love in himself. John said in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You see, the love of God for us comes from love himself. And it has no outside influence. But it's in God. And it remains in God. And so that Christ who is in God is its center. If God was to change his mind tomorrow, we'd all be eternally lost. But he says his love is everlasting. Hey, that's a long, long time. Look at verses 4 through 6 now. <clears throat> Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. The Lord said, I'm going to rebuild Israel. And Israel, you're going to be happy again, and you're going to dance and be happy with your tambourines. You're going to plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria again. You're going to eat from your own gardens there. And the day is coming. The day will come when watchmen will shout from the hill country of Ephraim, Come, let's go up to Jerusalem and worship the Lord our God. Verses 7 and 8. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together, a great throng shall return there. So Jesus is going to come again and he's going to reign. And his throne is going to be on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So, so there in the area, which is now the East Bank, will again be completely occupied by Israel. And they're going to be saying, come on, hey, let's go to Zion and see the Lord God. The Lord our God. As he says again, sing with joy for Israel. Shout for the greatest of nations. Speaking of Israel. Shout out with praise and joy. Save your people, Lord, the remnant of Israel. So pray for their salvation. And now the Lord is talking about this gathering. And he says, I will bring them from the north and from the distant corners of the earth. I'm going to bring them from all over. Because it's such a huge task to bring the people back to the land. You might think that he'd leave the blind. He says, no, I'm bringing the blind. He might leave the lame behind. But he says in verses 7, no, I'm bringing everybody. You think he'd leave behind those who, were most phys, uh, who weren't physically able, but he's bringing them all. He's bringing them all. But God says, hey, I'm bringing everybody back, not just the physically able. Look at verse 9. 
They shall come with weeping and with supplications, and I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. God says, I'm a father to Israel and Ephraim. Ephraim, again, is, is, just, is another name for Israel. He says, it, it, Ephraim, Israel, they're, they're my firstborn. Now, he's not speaking of one individual. He speaks of the whole nation as a group. God says, I am a father to Israel. Look at verses 10 through 12 now. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the, in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. He says... In verses 10 to 12, and he says, In the kingdom age, they're going to come home. And they're going to sing songs of joy in the heights of Jerusalem. And they're gonna, the word streaming here speaks that they're going to be glowing. They're going to be radiating because of the Lord's good gifts. The land is going to produce wheat, olive trees, olive oil, wine, grapes, flocks herds abundantly and their souls are going to be refreshed he says what like a watered garden there's going to be no more sorrow verses 13 through 15 then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together for i will turn their mourning to joy will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow i will satiate or fill the soul of the priest with abundance and i and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness says the lord thus says the lord a voice was heard in rama lamentation and bitter weeping rachel weeping for her children refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more so he says the young women are going to dance with joy with the men, the young and the old. They're going to all join in this celebration. He says, I'm going to turn their mourning into joy. I'm going to comfort them. I'm going to exchange their sorrow for rejoicing. And he says, the priests, man, they're going to enjoy abundance. You see, God wants to satisfy your life with his goodness. I like that verse at the end of, uh, in, there in the middle of verse 14. He says, and my people be, shall be satisfied with what? My goodness. He says, satisfied. And there's so many people who are not satisfied today. That's because they're trying to satisfy them things, themselves with the things of the world. And all that can do is just bring you temporary joy. But he says, I will satisfy them with my goodness. And that's all God wants. He wants to satisfy your life with his goodness and his love. Our father is like a loving grandfather. He just wants to show you all of his affection. He wants to do all kinds of neat things for you, good things for you. He takes pleasure in you. And here he talks about just satisfying their souls with fatness, with the goodness, with the best. And verse 14 says, And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. And notice, shall be. He says, you will be satisfied with my goodness. What an awesome day that's going to be when our lives are just filled to overflowing.
Now, something kind of odd here. In verses 13 through 15, here we have in the midst of all of this joy and all of this blessing and singing and dancing that's going on here, the Lord puts something here in the midst of these three verses. He interjects these words. Notice again in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So here in the midst of this joy, like I said, in this blessing and singing, he interjects these words. And, and, and he says, a cry is going to be heard in Ramah. There's going to be deep anguish and, and bitter weeping. He says, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted. Why? Because her children are gone. Now this prophecy that's inserted here, it doesn't really relate to the rest of the prophecy. It doesn't relate to what he's, what's being said here. Because it's talking about joy and dancing and being satisfied with the goodness of God. And then right in the middle of all of this, he inserts this little prophecy. And in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, this is a prophecy relating to the mothers in Bethlehem whose children were murdered by Herod, remember, who was trying to destroy baby Jesus. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, remember the wise men came from the east? They were following a star, and they came to Herod, and they asked Herod in Matthew 2, 2, hey, where, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So Herod asked the scribes, hey, where, 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 where was the Messiah to be born? And they told him in Bethlehem, based on Micah's prophecy in Micah 5, 2, that says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrata." You are, a little, you are little to be among the uh, clans of Judah, yet out of you shall one come forth for me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings are from, uh, who have been from old and from everlasting, from ancient days, speaking of eternity. So Herod said to the wise men, hey, go and search for the young child. And when you find him, come and tell me because, hey, I want to go and I want to worship him. Of course, Herod was lying. Herod wanted to know where, this, where baby Jesus was because he wanted to kill him. He wanted to kill Jesus because he didn't want any competitors to his throne. So the wise men left, and the star led them and stood over the place where Jesus was in Bethlehem, and they came and they offered Jesus their gifts. And then Mary and Joseph, remember, they were warned by the Lord not to go back to Herod, so they, they returned by another route. And then when Herod realized the wise men hadn't returned, he ordered all children, two years old and under, in Bethlehem to be killed because he was trying to destroy the Messiah, who again would be a rival to his throne. So Matthew tells us that the scripture might, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which declared a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, for Rachel is weeping for her children and refused to be comforted for her children because they were not, because they were killed. So Matthew tells us it's a prophecy that's fulfilled at the time of the birth of Christ. But again, it's unusual how it's inserted here because it doesn't really fit the context of this chapter. Again, which is a context of joy and dancing and restoration in the last days. But here's the thing. Again, and, and when you read the Bible, you pick up on this. All the way through the Old Testament, God has slipped in prophecies about the Messiah. 
Because the Old Testament pointing to the birth of Christ. And the New Testament is the, um, again, the, the, the event of or the fulfillment of what the, New, the Old Testament was prophesying about, what it was pointing to. So all the way through the Old Testament, God has slipped in prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, there was that eager expectation that was planted in the hearts of the people by God that the Messiah is coming, the Messiah will come. So here we're dealing with the Messiah's second coming in chapter 31, and yet he inserts this, the Holy Spirit inserts this prophecy here dealing with his first coming. Right here in the middle of all of this joy and the blessing and the peace and the good times of his second coming. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping, In other words, stop your crying and your ears from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. This is a great verse here, you guys, to to underline or make a note of, where he says, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Because Here's why. Because your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. In other words, your service to the Lord is never in vain. It's never forgotten, no matter what it is. And when, when we talk about service of the Lord, that doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, you're not in ministry, you know, you're not pastoring, you're not a Sunday school teacher, or you're not an usher. Your ministry is wherever God has you. It may be taking care of a sick loved one. It may be whatever it might be, wherever God has you at the moment or at any time, that's your ministry. And, and so it's never in vain. Never think of, of you, well, I'm not really doing anything important. Wherever God has you, that's where he wants you to be. And that is important. God, and here's the thing. That's why he says there you know, to, 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 to stop your crying, to, to, to retrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. He says, don't get discouraged. So the, the, the encouragement in this verse is mostly for Israel, but it does pertain to us as well. God is going to reward you for your service and your labor for Him. Here it concerns it concerned their eventual restoration to the land. But even though the encouragement is given particularly to Israel, the principle in this verse is for all of us. It's for all God's people. In other words, it's an encouragement to you. It's an encouragement to me to keep serving and to keep living for Him. Even though sometimes, man, and at times, it doesn't look like it's worth it. Whatever the reasoning might be. And the thing that we need to remember is I am serving the Lord. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what's going on around me, I am serving the Lord. There's two things to look at here in verse 16. First, the principle God gives. The principle from God. He said right there, notice verse 16, he said what? Refrain your voice from uh, from weeping and your eyes from tears. Here's the principle from God. In other words, and, and God orders those, he orders those who are discouraged to stop crying. He says, hey, stop crying. It's very instructive that this precept comes before the promise. 
you would think, and I, and I thought about it here too, because a lot of times we do it with children. You know, when they're crying, we tell them about, you know, the, the promise, you know, you know, if you stop crying, I'll give you this, and, you know, and, and, and then they stop crying. But God said, no, stop crying. Then he gave the promise. Like I said, you think you'd, you'd be better off to first tell the person, or the, to the discouraged person, the, the promise, hey, good things are coming, so they'd stop their crying. But God often gives the, general, the, the, the precept to the principle before the promise in order to help our faith to grow. He says, stop crying. And you know what? We should say, okay, okay, Lord. Okay. Then he gave the promise. All right, it's obedience to the command that will comfort us. Comfort and obedience go together. So if you want to experience the promises, pay attention to the precepts. And the second thing we want to look at here is the promise from God. He told him, stop crying. And so the idea is when they stopped crying, then he was going to tell them the promise. Stop crying. Your work shall be rewarded. You see, so many times we get discouraged in serving the Lord and living for the Lord. He said, your work's going to be rewarded. And we think that our serving and our living for God, it's been for nothing. Now, there are at least three reasons why we get discouraged. Number one, rewards don't come right away, as we all know. And the thing is, too, if we're looking for rewards and waiting for rewards, might not be the best reason for serving God. I'm serving God because of what He's done for me. So, one of the reasons why we get discouraged is because rewards don't, uh, uh, rewards don't come right away. We often have to wait a, a long time before we see any fruit from what our service is and, and for living for God. And Abraham had to wait, you know, hundreds, a hundred years before he got the, the promise of God. Many times we see the promise of God. Hey, they didn't happen right away. The second reason why we get discouraged is rewards don't come easy. Serving God isn't easy a, a lot of the times. Living for God is not easy. It takes a lot of effort to get divine rewards to get God's rewards it's not easy to serve and live for God but difficulty should not deter deter the reward difficulty enhances the reward I worked through whatever I was doing wherever I was serving and and however you know whatever I was going through I worked through that and that would that's what enhances the reward the third reason why we get discouraged is rewards aren't admired. They're not valued. Not many people value the rewards of heaven. Most people prefer something quick and easy, something shoddy, some shoddy reward that the, that the world gives you where, you where you get them quickly and, and you get them easily and, and, and man pats you on the back and says, well done. But man, we need to hang in there, you guys, for God's rewards. 
Why? They're the best rewards. They're, they're lasting. And God's going to bless us on that day we stand before the judgment seat of Christ for what we did here as Christians in ministering and living for him. And God will reward us for those, those, those days. So don't get discouraged. Don't give up. You know what? You keep serving. You keep living for God. And God says, hey, I'll take care of you. Verses 17 and 18. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. There is hope in your future, says the Lord. But in the meantime, you're going to go through some dark times. You're going to experience some heavy times. But in the end, there's hope. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, For his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And this, is, this has been one of my, a, a, a life verse for me in the worst, the worst times of my life. When I read this, it, it just, it was my promise. It was his promise to me. Yeah, you may be weeping tonight, but joy's coming in the morning. The only thing is he didn't say what morning. <laughs> he just said it's on the way. There again. Waiting. Hang in there. The promise is coming. So a repentant Israel, as they realize that the Lord is chastising them, and now because they're chastising them, they're willingly submitting to God's yoke. Ephraim, or Israel, who rebelled against the Lord has, and has gone their own way in disobedience, they're now saying, Lord, you chastised us? Put your yoke on us again and you turn us in the direction you want us to go and we will be turned. We will go. See, now they're understanding God. Now they're surrendering to God. And that's what we need to do. We need to take his yoke and we need to willingly submit to his leading and his guidance and put that puppy on, man. Okay, Lord. It's great to have our lives directed by God. Ephraim said, restore me and I will return for you are the holy, for you are the Lord my God. Verses 19 through 26. Surely after my turning, I repented and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up signposts. Make landmarks. Set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these, your cities. How long will you get about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and its cities, and in its cities, when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have sati satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. 
After this, I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. As the Jews started for Babylon, God told them to remember the roads. And he says, set up markers along the way because the people would use them, those same roads, when they would return to their land. So it's like, you know, putting breadcrumbs. They'd see the markers and follow those markers back to their land. Jeremiah pictured Judah here as a silly girl going from lover to lover. And now she's called to go home. According to the law, a daughter who prostituted herself should be put to death. But God was going to do a new thing. He was going to welcome her home and he was going to forgive her. And he says in verse 22, notice, a woman shall encompass a man. Now the word translated encompass also means to surround with care, to shield. And it's used of God's care for Israel in the wilderness. The word for man means a strong man, a champion. So the new thing that God's going to do, God... He's going to make the woman so strong. When he says a woman shall encompass a man, God is going to make the woman so strong that they protect the men. You have to remember, this was a strongly masculine society. In other words, the return of the exiles back from Babylon, back home, wouldn't be a procession of a bunch of weak stragglers. It was going to be a march of warriors, men and women, again, including the women, who were considered at the time to be too weak to fight in that day. This is a picture of that future regathering of the people of Israel in the end times. They're going to enjoy a renewed land where the citizens will bless their neighbors in the name of the Lord. He said farmers and city dwellers are going to live together in harmony because of the Lord's blessing. Verses 27 through 30. Verses 27 through 30. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more. uh, In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone, notice, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. The Lord says here, the day is coming when I'm going to greatly increase the population, your population, and the number of animals in Israel and Judah. He says, in the past, I deliberately uprooted and tore down this nation. He said, I overthrew it, I destroyed it, and I brought disaster upon it. He says, but in the future, he says, I'm going to just as deliberately plant it and build it up. And the people will no longer quote this proverb. He says that the parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouth pucker at the taste. He says all people are going to die for their own sins. Notice that each person is going to die for their own sins. Those who eat the sour grapes will be the ones whose mouths will pucker. Verse 31 through 40. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." 
No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Garab, then it shall be toward Goeth, and the whole valley on, of the dead bodies and of the ashes, and all the fields as far as the uh, brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. Any plan, any plan to make society better that ignores the problem of sin is bound to fail. Again, look at our country who has ignored the sin problem. Hey, it's failing. It takes more than, a, it takes more than changing the environment. It takes more than voting for the right political party to change society because as Warren Wiersbe says, the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. God has to change people's hearts that they, so that they want to love Him. So they want to do the will of God. That's why God announced that, that a new covenant was going to replace the old covenant. He said the one that the Jews lived under ever since the days of Moses, because it was a covenant that they, they could only direct their, their conduct, but couldn't change their character, was going to be changed. Jewish history is filled with many covenants that were renewed. But it only brought temporary blessing. It never changed the hearts of the people. Deuteronomy records a renewal of the covenant under Moses before the people entered the promised land. So, again, Moses introduced a, a renewed uh, covenant. Joshua did. Samuel did. Hezekiah did. Joseph, uh, Josiah did. But the new covenant isn't just a renewal of the old covenant that God gave at Sinai. It's a covenant that's new in every way. The new covenant is inward. So that God's law is written on the heart and not on stone tablets. The emphasis is personal rather than national. With each person putting their faith in the Lord and receiving a new heart. And with that new heart, a new attitude toward godliness. The old covenant tried to control behavior. But the new covenant changes will change character so that the people can love the Lord and love one another and want to obey God's will. Paul said in Romans 3.20, the law simply shows us how sinful we are. But under the new covenant, God promised in verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This is the covenant that the Jews will experience in the last days when they see their Messiah and they repent. The foundation for the new covenant is in the work is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The new covenant. And because the church today shares in Israel's spiritual wealth and riches, 
Anyone who puts faith in Jesus Christ shares in this new covenant. It's an experience of regeneration. It's the new birth, being born again into the family of God. The Lord also confirmed in these verses the permanence of the nation, Israel, and the faithfulness of his relationship with them in verses 35 through 37. God says, the, the, he, he said, the sun would stop shining and the moon and the stars would go out before I would break my promise to my people Israel. Just as, Israel, just as Jerusalem was rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity, he says it will be restored after the time of Jacob's trouble, talking about the great tribulation period, and it will be holy to the Lord. Jerusalem is called the holy city, you know, the holy land, but it really isn't today. And it won't truly be holy until Jesus returns and he restores it and he reigns in it in his glory at the end of the age. So in closing, the same Jesus who stilled the Sea of Galilee is the Jesus who keeps every atom and every star in its place. He keeps the universe in balance and he provides for every plant and every animal. One day Jesus is coming back to restore the world that sin has corrupted. And he's going to make it complete, a completely new heavens and earth. Even now, he's the God who gives eternal life to those who trust in him. He's the one who will calm every storm in their life, and he will give strength for every tragedy in their life as well. That is the wonderful God that we serve. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful chapter, Lord, and the beautiful promise that you've given us, Father. Lord, let us not be discouraged, God. Let us not be weary of well, in well-doing, God. Father, help us to understand, Lord, to grasp the truth that, God, your rewards are everlasting, God. And we will receive them, God. So, Father, just help us to keep our eyes on you, God. You're our strength. You're our sufficiency, Lord. You have an affinity for weakness, God. Your strength is seen in our weakness, God. So, as Paul said, he rejoiced in his weakness because then he saw your strength, God. So, God, may we look to you in everything that we do, Father. We thank you so much, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Sunday morning. Thank God. We're going to pick up now and where we left off in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll finish the second half of chapter 6. Again, we remember God gave, showed his, his uh, comfort and his strength in suffering. And now it's going to be a call to separation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And Sunday night, we'll pick up now where we left off in Jonah. We'll be in Jonah chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Jonah yields to God's will. God bless you guys.